Age to Practice, applying educational reading in the classroom. Join in the conversation using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. This episode of From Page to Practice is a Charter College of Teaching Impact Journal special where I am joined by college members, fellows and chartered teachers to discuss the contents of the latest issue. If you enjoy the discussion and want to get a hold of your own copy of Impact, visit chartered.college and join as a member. Hi and welcome to the first Impact special of From Page to Practice. I had an amazing response to my request for contributions to this episode, so it's going to be a bumper edition. Let's call it a feature-length episode, compared to the normal short ones. In this episode, we hear from a range of voices, from the authors of particular articles, CTEACH colleagues and those currently on the course, and other Chartered College of Teaching members. We don't cover every article, and certainly don't give away the entirety of each piece mentioned, so the best thing is to make sure you join the Chartered College, so that next time you can have your own copy, and maybe contribute yourself. Finally, before we get started, don't forget to join in the conversation on Twitter with hashtag PagePracticePodcast, and share the podcast with your friends and colleagues. You're listening to From Page to Practice, a Chartered College Impact Journal special. Join the Charter College and we'll support you to deliver CPD for you and your colleagues, improve teaching and learning and student outcomes, and reduce workload by engaging with the latest research of what works and why. First up today, we have Sarah Eisen, author of Research-Based Training, Translating Evidence into Practice One Byte at a Time. Hi, my name is Sarah Eisen and you can find me on Twitter at SJIZON. I have just started my 11th year in teaching and I'm an evidence lead in education for the Aspira Research School in Macclesfield and have recently been named the research lead for their Manchester hub. My article in the Impact magazine was all about translating evidence into practice. It was a case study about a new training structure I delivered for the research school that focused on splitting key research into bite-sized chunks. We use the Education Endowment Foundation guidance reports for Key Stage 1 and Key Stage 2 in literacy. The structure of the sessions were two 90-minute sessions in an afternoon, and we did these every two weeks, so we had eight sessions in total. Each session focused on just one recommendation of the Key Stage 1 and Key Stage 2 guidance reports, and this allowed us time to really dive deeper into the research and have a real professional discussion around it. We then looked at different ways that this research could be implemented into the classroom and looked at lots of different methods that would work in Key Stage 1 and would also work in Key Stage 2. We made sure that we were clear that we just said to the teachers, this is what the research says and this is what it could look like in your classroom, making it really, really clear that context is key. Just because the outcomes worked in research that was delivered in one classroom, it does not always mean that it would work in your classroom. And teachers need to be aware that it's not their failings if it doesn't work in their classroom, it's just their context is different from where the research was conducted and that's okay. And often the research from the guidance reports, people are already using these techniques in their classroom. It's often just a few tweaks that might need to be made, whether it's them being more explicit with which reading strategy they're teaching that day, or whether it's using a diagnostic spelling assessment to help unpick the next steps. Often the research that is out there is nothing groundbreakingly new. It's just that we need to make a few tweaks to what we're already doing to become more effective and more efficient teachers. 
I really enjoyed the training structure because it allowed time for the teachers to go away in those two-week breaks to trial some of the things that they'd heard, to make those tweaks that we talked about, and then it allowed them when they came back the next session to have some time for some feedback and some professional dialogue with others to see how they were getting on. And it really allowed the group to come together and offer support and advice. For those who are wanting to start investigating research a little bit more, I would really recommend the Education Endowment Foundation guidance reports. There are about 15 out there now covering literacy, maths, science. There are ones for early years, there are ones for key stage two. And each guidance report takes a huge, a huge amount of literature and breaks it down into seven or eight key recommendations for teachers and offers some simple practical tips that you could use in your classroom to help you translate that evidence into practice yourself. Thank you very much for listening. And if you'd like to know any more, please get in contact with me on Twitter. And thank you for Rebecca for asking me to be part of Page to Practice podcast. In her article and her contributions to this podcast, Sarah considers what research could look like in the classroom and some important considerations in how to apply research in the classroom. She places emphasis on allowing time to trial ideas, discuss, tweak and feedback in order to implement research in the classroom in the best way possible. Sarah's ideas fit in so well with exactly what From Page to Practice is all about, it makes sense for her to be our first feature today. Thank you so much to Sarah for sharing her article with us, a topic that I'm sure you're all interested in. If not, I'm not sure why you'd be listening to From Page to Practice. Don't forget to let us know your thoughts using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. You're listening to From Page to Practice, a Chartered College Impact Journal special. Join the Chartered College and we'll connect you with the experts through our research, CPD we offer, networks, webinars and events, and our brilliant CPD packs, which are ready-to-go staff training sessions. Next up, we hear from Jess, a friend I made whilst completing the Chartered Teacher Programme. Jess has chosen to talk about my article, The Importance of Regular Review for Long-Term Learning, and I'm really looking forward to hearing how she's applied my article from a secondary MFL perspective to primary teaching. When I found out that Bex had written an article for the latest issue of Impact, I was really excited to read it. I usually read the primary articles first and decided to make an exception this time. Rosenshine's principles of instruction were something with which I'm familiar. I've used them in my own practice. We talked about them when we did see Teach. And it's been really pleasing for me recently to see them mentioned in induction events for NQTs and trainee teachers while I've been speaking about the Chartered College of Teaching. Looking at this article, I was interested to see how the principles can be applied outside of my own setting. When I sat down to read the article, I was expecting it to be, like all impact articles are, accessible, not too long and effective, and this one was no exception. The article starts by explaining that it will address two of Rosenshine's principles, focusing on the modern language classroom but notes that many of the ideas are also applicable in different subject areas. I was really interested to find out how they can be applied in the modern language classroom, as this is unfamiliar to me and interesting. However, I was really struck that as soon as I began reading, my brain was making connections to areas where I'm more familiar, especially with primary maths. Despite the fact that I was reading to learn about using Rosenshine's principles in language teaching, the links were so obvious it was impossible not to make them. 
Bex begins by mentioning that there are a number of grammatical concepts that students need to grasp in order to learn more complex grammatical structure. For me, I think this reminded me instantly of the importance of place value learning in primary school maths. Without an understanding of place value, it's really hard for children to go on and learn things like multiplication and addition because their basic structures aren't there. It was interesting to see that this is something that's also considered to be vital in another subject area. A quote by Björk in 1994 states that that which students find easy is not always what is best for their learning. And I'm actually considering putting this up in my own room. Beginning by addressing principle one, begin each lesson with a short review of previous learning. The article mentions a number of activities which could be used to address this principle in a different way at the start of different lessons. Brain dump ask students to write everything they can remember about a verb without looking at notes is probably something which is easier to do in key stage four than key stage one. Though this is something that I've used successfully with key stage two students when trying to work out what they had learned and indeed what they had remembered from when they covered a particular topic in a previous year. An example is given of match-up where the target language and the English is given and the students simply need to match the two sides. This is something that I would use if I were teaching fractions, especially equivalent fractions. And I do feel that this would take the pressure off students who are nervous about what they had remembered. We can say, all the answers are there. All you need to do is find them. Fill in the blanks suggests providing a table with the whole verb paradigm in the present tense, but removing some content and asking students to fill it back in. There are many ways in which this could be applied when teaching maths to primary school students. We could use it when um, teaching subtraction and it would be a really good way of getting the students to revise the inverse. We could also do it with times tables. I found that I was able to um, complete the activity in the journal article reasonably accurately and I did wonder if this was because my French learning was before Ofsted, was before uh, times when rote learning was perhaps um, discouraged. The article mentions a memory challenge task where pupils are asked to, for example, select the odd one out from a list of words. This is something that we do quite often in primary maths and I personally hadn't really thought about it in relation to Rosenshine's principles. For me, I would ask children to look at a series of fractions or a series of multiplication calculations and tell me which was the odd one out and why. Now I've thought about this, it's certainly something that I would more consciously use as a retrieval exercise knowledge retrieval tasks where students are asked to recall a mixture of key vocabulary from the last lesson, last week, last month, or even last year. In language learning is something that in maths learning in primary school fits in with the idea of small steps learning, whereby the children are encouraged to understand where each new piece of learning fits onto the things that they have already learned. I'm sure that I will go to the activities on learninglinguist.co.uk 
partly to find out how modern foreign language learning is different now to when I learned languages, but also because I'm sure that many of the tasks will be able to be adapted really easily to use across other subjects and in other phases. The article goes on to address Principle 10, engage students in weekly and monthly review. The article highlights the importance of forgetting as part of the process of learning and reminds us that recalling content after a gap can help to strengthen our ability to remember. I've heard this principle used to criticise the white rose scheme of maths which is used in many primary schools. The criticism being that each area of maths is covered once and in depth in each school year. Lots of people have tried to rewrite the scheme to allow each area of maths to be revisited in a more traditional spiral curriculum. I think, in relation to maths, that understanding the links between the different areas is a way in which we can revisit the topics, just like in the example here, learning to use the words which mean no longer and still can be learned in isolation and then used again and practised again when learning about other topics. The article discusses the possibility of engaging students in weekly and monthly review by using a mixture of lesson starters and homework to do this and also to structure assessments to make sure that students are being asked to review knowledge from previous modules as well as current modules. These are all activities that we can use in the primary classroom, whether we're learning maths or something else. Also, in relation to primary school particularly, we can use time such as when the children are lining up, when the children are walking as a class from one place to another within school, to rehearse things like times tables and number bonds, We could also indeed use this to practice French verbs that we might have been learning. The article mentions a balance between regular reviewing, which happens within learning quite naturally, and the choice to include review in a more structured and formal way. I think as a teacher of whatever subject, we need to understand what we're asking the students to learn And we need to be able to make distinctions between things which are naturally easy to review and those things which are much more difficult to review by accident. I think certainly in a primary classroom, some of these more difficult to review areas could involve uh, reading scales or measuring volume. This is when I think in a primary school, we have the advantage over specialist subject teachers in that I could review capacity in a topic lesson where we were learning about geography. I do think that it's really interesting and important for all of us to read articles which address subjects and areas other than our own. And it's really struck me when I've been thinking about this how much I can learn from other subject areas and from people who are specialists in teaching things other than primary maths. Thanks, Jess. It's really great to hear someone in a totally different subject or age group can read an article not totally intended for them and really get something from it. 
an important lesson for all of us in how to engage with research and applying it in our own classrooms. You're listening to From Page to Practice, a Chartered College Impact Journal special. Join the Chartered College and help us celebrate the profession to build value and trust amongst the education community and share your voice to shape your profession. Next up, we hear from Matthew with yet another example of applying an article written from a secondary perspective in a primary classroom. Here he is discussing In Defence of the Arts by Carolyn Booth. My name is Matthew Courtney. I'm a primary school teacher and I'm going to be discussing the In Defence of the Arts article written by Caroline Booth from the latest issue of Impact. So the article looks at the importance of the arts for developing skills such as empathy, emotional intelligence and self-esteem. It also explores the value of the arts for developing children's character and makes reference to the framework for character education from the Jubilee Centre. Something that really resonated with me from the article is how it stresses the point that the arts are positioned within our timetabled curriculum and they don't just become relegated to becoming solely extracurricular activities, although it's obvious these do hold value. I really enjoyed the article, not just because I think it was really well written and it was in consonance with views I had already held about the power of the arts, but also because it encouraged me to reflect on my own practice and my own use of the arts. So I'm currently a year one teacher and the article had quite a big focus on secondary education, so I discussed GCSE examinations for example. So when I did reflect on the article, I had to think about how this might translate for me and how it might look differently for me in my key stage one context. The article places emphasis on the arts as a driver for the use of teamwork, which in turn it states, develops people's character. It makes reference to research on music education, which looks at the power of music to instill a sense of belonging amongst children. This is something I'd seen first-hand from my own work in primary schools, through whole school singing assemblies, class performances and assemblies, where you can see children are enjoying working together and having the chance to perform. The article goes on to speak about the value of performing in front of an audience and the impact this might have. So within my own practice, I already use drama and role play with my English lessons. So if the children have read a story together, they might go off in small groups and role play parts of the story. Or if they're making their own story up, they might go and role play it first before they go and write it. This gives them a chance to already rehearse sentences before they write them down and develop their vocab, which in turn will develop their writing. So I'd already used the drama as a tool to improve children's English work, but now I wanted to reflect from the article on the importance of drama within its own right something that's called in the article, art for art's sake. So when I think back to using drama, I think it rings true to me that when children do perform in front of an audience, which is often their classmates in this instance, it seems to strengthen teamwork within the group. Partly because I think of the bravery that it takes to go up and perform in front of an audience, which develops their self-confidence, but also because they're relying on each other and their small group and their team when they're performing in front of the whole class. I would agree with the article about how role play and the arts in general can develop children's character because I feel it gives them a chance to develop empathy by putting themselves in others' shoes and viewing viewing themselves and others through the lens of somebody else's experiences. The article goes on to talk about the emotional response children have to music, dance and poetry. So often when I show children a piece of artwork, 
or read them a piece of poetry, they have quite strong opinions on how they feel. They can often tell me really clearly, I really like that or I didn't like that. But when it comes to explaining why or giving extra description or giving, naming their emotions, they sometimes lack the emotional vocab to convey this effectively. So when I'm encouraging children to reflect on pieces of art, I often try and tease out the vocab they're using and model its correct use, or give them extra vocabulary they can use to convey or communicate the emotion that they're speaking about. I feel like this is really empowering for children. When they've got the vocabulary to describe their emotion, it helps develop their emotional intelligence. When they're able to name their emotions, they're able to speak, to the, speak about them and communicate them really clearly. Equip some of the tools to do so. I also think it engenders skills of, skills of empathy and understanding. If children can name and recognise emotions within themselves, they can then name and recognise emotions within others. The power of the arts to invoke an emotional response from children is a testament to their power, and also, as the art article has shown, a valid validation and defence of their importance and their place within a well-balanced curriculum. Our next contribution comes from Keith Rose, a childhood teacher and one of the authors of Creativity, Science and the Arts. Hello, my name's Keith Rose and I'm Head of Chemistry at Wycliffe College near Stroud in Gloucestershire. I'm a biochemist by training and I've worked in clinical research before going on to teaching. I'm really interested in history as well as all aspects of science. My dad was a chemistry teacher and my mother and sister were English teachers and so I grew up with what I hope is a very balanced approach to science and the arts and I can become quite agitated when somebody implies or says that science can do without art and vice versa. I spotted the call for contributions to the September issue of Impact, which focuses on creativity, and I was determined to put forward the point that science is a creative endeavour and that we must include creativity in our science teaching. Things have changed since C.P. Snow harangued the establishment in the 50s with his concern over the, what he called the two cultures, meaning the culture of science and the culture of arts, and he felt that the two things didn't mix. We now routinely offer science alongside the creative subjects in school, so things have certainly improved. But even this shows the problem. All subjects need to be creative, and it's vital to remember this in our teaching. So I became interested in cognitive science as part of the Chartered College's C-Teach program. And I was fascinated to find out that the cognitive processes involved in science are very similar to those involved in creative endeavors. Scientific knowledge operates by comparing new experiences and information with existing schema and then modifying these explanations to accommodate new information. Now, deductive reasoning simply draws out conclusions from initial hypotheses, but inductive reasoning goes further and induced principles which are seen to be inadequate and need flexibility and creativity to explore other options. Now, Niels Bohr, who was my favourite scientist, a Nobel laureate physicist, was once quoted as saying, you're not thinking, you're just being logical. And that sums it up. Logical thinking without creativity will produce results which will not move knowledge into new fields or see new links in existing knowledge. Runko and Chand show that this process is very similar to the thought processes involved in creative endeavours. So if the processes are so similar, why don't we combine them in teaching? It is re it's relatively easy and very rewarding to bring creativity into science, 
writing short stories or poems to demonstrate a principle, or sketching a cartoon to illustrate a process. However, the real power comes in if students are allowed to creatively explain whole processes. They may be wrong, and often are, but by applying Occam's razor to reduce the number of hypotheses or Popper's um, testability check, then the creative explanation can be verified and they learn something about the scientific principles in the process. Students are often surprised to hear just how odd early supposedly scientific explanations were. Things like uh, geocentrism or the Martian canals or phlogiston. So, Hadzi Giorgio and his co-authors list the crucial points for engendering creativity in science. First of all, students need sufficient subject knowledge before they can see the need for explanation. Number two, they need to be, re they need to be allowed to have really imaginative and divergent thinking, and that's got to be encouraged. Number three, uh, the imagery and visualisation are important. Sometimes you just find that the students don't have the scientific literacy to explain things verbally. Four, the notion of wonder is really important. We really want that wow factor in their explanations. Five, allowing divergence from the here and now is useful. Explanations of events in the past and the future or elsewhere in the world are very, very productive. And last of all, collaboration. Collaboration is really important and that mirrors how science works and it helps in the classroom. So we need to keep creativity in the science classroom. And doing this doesn't just make science teaching more fun for everybody. We really need people who can make those creative leaps that have produced our culture and perhaps can help us keep it in the future. Uh, reading. Um, I definitely recommend reading the Kind and Kind uh, article that I, I put at the end of, of my own article on creativity in science education. It's a really good read and it certainly helped me format these ideas. Thank you very much. You're listening to From Page to Practice, a Chartered College Impact Journal special. Join the Chartered College and we'll support you to deliver CPD for you and your colleagues, improve teaching and learning and student outcomes, and reduce workload by engaging with the latest research of what works and why. It's been really interesting so far to hear how so much of what we do across subjects and phases can link together and be similar. So now we're going to hear from Andrea about what's different about arts teachers and why it matters. Hello, my name is Andrea William-Jones. I'm a music teacher and assistant head teacher based in a large comprehensive school in North Bristol. I tweet as Andrea WJFCCT. I'm talking about what's different about arts teachers and why it matters. The article celebrates the individuality of arts teachers and how students respond to that individuality and how being in arts lessons makes them feel. I feel myself that having been involved with arts teachers for my whole career, they play a very important role in both school life, subject life and student development. <clears throat> First and foremost, <clears throat> they're different. Christine Hall and Pat Thompson explain how their tail interviews and tail research show how students respond well to having something that they consider to be different. Um, a contrast 
or a relief, if you will, from the rest of the school curriculum, which can perhaps be more constrained. In these days of of times when we're told that student mental health is suffering more than ever before, I feel very strongly that arts teachers in all their guises are actually giving health, well-being and mental health education to our students in a very, very subtle way. Yes, arts teachers are different. They're often quirky, quirky personalities, quirky dresses, very eclectic and individual tastes. Their classrooms are very often works of art in themselves or they express their personalities through the music they listen to, how they spend their time and how their rooms are decorated. This in itself encourages students to explore their own identities and see that there is absolutely no problem with being an individual and let's face it very often finding individuality is something that teenagers especially struggle with the students interviewed by Christine Hall and Pat Thompson markedly markedly comment how they like the collaborative working and being treated as artists and individuals that in my opinion, comes purely from the fact that students work very individually and very independently and that there is no right or wrong answer. It's a question of subjectivity, taste and personality. Students like this and they like the fact that very often the teaching is more facilitation and that as a result they have far more personal input into what they're doing an expression of themselves and hence what they're learning and developing as persons as well as in the curriculum. The cultural capital that comes with arts education is also really important because as well as learning specific art skills and life skills as such as independence, resilience, the ability to research, Students are also receiving a cultural education which might be with them forever and that's very important. I know that I'm biased, but arts plays a very special part in the curriculum. It links the school with the community. It links the community back into the wider world. It brings people together across age, colour, creed, faith and taste divisions and it helps us to make rounded individuals. Long live the arts curriculum. The article by Christine Hall and Pat Thompson, as well as what Andrea said, resonated with me. I'm not an arts teacher myself, but when I think of my own experiences and the relationships I had with my music teachers compared to other teachers, I can really see a difference. Something interesting to consider. You're listening to From Page to Practice, a Chartered College Impact Journal special. Join the Chartered College and we'll connect you with the experts through our research, CPD we offer, networks, webinars and events, and our brilliant CPD packs, which are ready to go staff training sessions. Using the drawing effect to bridge the vocabulary barrier is our next article, and the discussion is led by author Henry Saunston. Hello. 
My name is Henry Saunson and I am an assistant principal at the City of Peterborough Academy. Working in Peterborough presents its challenges, of course. Peterborough, uh, from an education perspective, needs a lot of investment, a lot of work, a lot of development. And its literacy levels traditionally are rather low. Social mobility also very low. So one of the main challenges we have is that of including all our students in our learning and ensuring that they're getting the best quality teaching available. Now, we run an evidence-informed programme of professional development for teaching staff. We believe very strongly that uh, teaching and learning interaction should be informed by uh, research evidence. And it was during the process of developing this model and refining it last year that we started to work with a company called Impact Wales who work with literacy development in schools. They guided me to a wonderful piece of research called The Drawing Effect, uh, Evidence for Reliable and Robust Memory Benefits in Free Recall, which was published in the Quarterly Journal of Experimental Psychology three years ago, 2016. Essentially, um, Wams, Mead and Fernandez explored the idea of students using drawing as a retrieval aid for key vocabulary and found that those students that drew an image that associated with a picture were able then better to recall that image and retrieve it for future use in the classroom. So the image helped strengthen that connection between the long-term memory and the working memory and bringing the ideas back and forth. A lot of similarity with the work done by Pavio around dual coding, which is certainly something that I would recommend looking up and learning more about before just assuming that it is putting a picture up next to a concept on a PowerPoint slide. There's a lot more to it than that. Now. I found that actually I'd been doing this for quite a while and these sort of images and drawing and using sketches on the board to help visualise concepts was nothing new but I didn't know the science behind it. I chose a year nine group um, of very mixed ability, a significant proportion of English as an additional language, some special educational need, um, some behavioural issues to be addressed and low literacy levels. Traditionally, 50% of our cohorts come in with a reading age 12 months below chronological. So there's a lot of hard work to be done in decoding the quite complex vocabulary and concepts that are present in the AQA anthology for power and conflict. Um, I really wanted to ensure that everybody was able to understand the basics before actually giving them the poems. So when you're going to tackle something like Ozymandias uh, by Shelley, you need to understand the basic vocabulary of visage and trunkless. If you're looking at London by Blake, you've got concepts around the French Revolution. Storm on the Island by Heaney, you need to know a bit about agriculture and also the Irish Troubles. Uh, if you're going to read War Photographer by Caroline Duffy, you need to know the darkroom process. There's a lot to think about. So we decided that, or I decided initially, to create one image of my own choosing for each poem, um, which would represent the main theme in the poem, and we'd then test ourselves using that. And then before every poem was taught, we'd use uh, time in the lesson for the students to draw a picture associated with a keyword or concept that poem would contain. By creating this sort of visual gallery, um, gallery glossary I suppose is a better word, it allowed us then to recall those concepts, those keywords and those ideas more readily when it came to assessing and discussing the poems in greater depth and the students found it easier to understand what was going on. Um, the poems have levels of meaning uh, which they were able to unpick and decode and we found that as their responses developed their confidence grew, they used the terminology more effectively and essentially, they really rather enjoyed glossary time where they could draw their image, create their idea, and then use that to build up better tier two and tier three vocab. 
Um, I'd strongly recommend using this in a range of different circumstances and uh, scenarios. I use it with all my groups now when it comes to specialist vocab. And decoding vocabulary at the beginning of the lesson or at the beginning of the unit makes it easier later on. Don't make assumptions about what your students know. What we may think is a standard piece of kitchen equipment like a ladle was actually quite an unfamiliar process to a lot of Year 7 students when we looked at Oliver Twist the other day. And my attempt at drawing a ladle on the board was rather amusing. Other things to think about are memory itself and how that will help improve students' memory. Memory, of course, being the residue of thought, so look at the work of William. And think also about seductive details that I reference in my article, uh, which is in, of course, the recent Impact magazine called Using the Drawing Effect to Bridge the Vocabulary Barrier. Uh, Harp and Mayer did a lot of work around seductive details, uh, and it helps you consider making sure that students aren't distracted by things that are unnecessary to the learning of that day. Other interesting reading, of course, Wahlberg and Sy's work around the Matthew effect. Um, it's old now, 1983, so same age as me. But... Uh really recommend it if you work in an area of high disadvantage and just remember when it comes to evidence-informed ideas be informed not led don't just do what something says because it sounds right try it but if it doesn't work refine it or ditch it think about what you're trying to do frame your inquiry question be specific so don't just look at all year nine students think of a small group or a, a key problem that you need to solve and look for an idea that might help you solve it Vocabulary is an issue discussed in more than one of the contributions to this episode. Appropriately, the next episode is on Closing the Vocabulary Gap by Alex Quigley. I didn't even plan that on purpose. What great timing! Continuing on a similar theme, we now hear from Donna Briggs about the Plymouth Oracy Project, its impact on non-academic measures of pupil success. My name is Donna Briggs and I'm the Deputy Director of Plymouth Teaching School Alliance. We've been leading on the Plymouth Oracy Project with over 30 schools in the city, primary, secondary and special schools. We utilised a range of quality CPD support from Voice Bradford Trainers, Oracy Cambridge and Voice 21 to develop the principles of the dialogic classroom into whole school policies and practices. This was a DfE SIF funded project and originated from the recognition that the attainment and progress of Plymouth learners, particularly disadvantaged pupils, was being limited by poor vocabulary and oracy barriers. It developed specialist oracy teaching skills which have become embedded within the school culture and environment. Oracy is essential for effective learning is proven to reduce the attainment gap for the most disadvantaged learners and school staff have a central role in pupils gaining the skills in speaking and listening they need to be successful in later life. The project outcomes from an independent evaluation from our partners Plymouth Marjan University evidenced improved attainment and progress for all pupils, more so for disadvantaged pupils who have begun to close the gap within the city. As well as this, there are many non-academic outcomes that were shared in the article. These included improved attendance, pupil confidence, pupil voice, social and emotional well-being, behaviour and parental engagement. Teachers and schools new to oracy should begin to engage within wider research around the subject, including from EEF studies and the study of the Dialogic Classroom by Robin Alexander. I would recommend that schools audit current oracy practices and work with leaders to develop a strategy of consistent implementation.
Oracy isn't a quick fix, but a dedicated approach to teaching, learning and classroom practice. It requires consistency across the school, from implementing talk rules and protocols to evaluating the quality of teacher talk and pupil talk and raising the expectations for talk. It is an expectation of all, staff and pupils alike. The full Plymouth Oracy project, for anyone interested, can be found at www.plymouthteachingschool.co.uk and it includes a recommended reading list. Neil Mercer states, you're the only second chance for some children to have a rich language experience. If these children are not getting it at school, they are not getting it. Plymouth Teaching School Alliance are committed to supporting schools in Plymouth and the Southwest in developing these oracy practices more widely. You're listening to From Page to Practice, a Charter College Impact Journal special. Join the Charter College and help us celebrate the profession to build value and trust amongst the education community and share your voice to shape your profession. Our final contribution for today was somewhat experimental. When Richard and Eugene both wanted to cover the same article, we decided that a collaboration was in order, and through the wonders of technology, we made it happen. So here they are, inspired by the Cultural Capital article by Barbara Blemen. My name's uh, Eugene Fadden. I am uh, assistant head and senko at a comprehensive school in Cornwall. Hi, I'm Richard Lewis. I'm a secondary teacher of maths at a SEND school for autistic kids in Wiltshire. I think having started off as a working class individual from immigrant background, with all my friends being immigrants and working class, and now being middle class and having very middle class kids, um, the idea of cultural capital really does like interest me. Just, just the idea that there's certain knowledge and certain ways of looking um, that some people just don't have and don't even know they don't have and which I didn't know I didn't have till I was older. Oh yeah, that's interesting. I, I came to it from a slightly different perspective. Um, I was interested because I've uh, recently started the C-Teach program and um, first uh, first task in that was um, an essay about a broad and balanced curriculum. And in order to think about what should be in a broad and balanced curriculum, I started looking up the idea of cultural capital and started reading about Bourdieu and thinking about whether or not the curriculum as written satisfies that idea of cultural capital. Um, But it's also interesting you're talking about those unknowns. I was reading recently about uh, Donald Rumsfeld and about how he was talking about the known knowns and the known unknowns and the unknown unknowns, the things that we don't yeah. know that we don't know. And yeah. um, I think that that's, it's really scary as a teacher that we're sending kids out into the world with so many of these unknown unknowns. They have no idea what they don't know. Certainly, and the idea that there are some individuals out, some other kids, who because of background or whatever, do have that cultural knowledge and, and and because of their cultural knowledge they are a, better able to get ahead very much like that that sketch with with uh john cleese and um uh ronnie barker and ronnie corbett with uh where john cleese looks down on the the middle class okay. yeah. man yeah. And, 
Yeah, and Ronnie Barker looks down on uh, Ronnie Corbett, and Ronnie Corbett knows his place. Yeah, it's it's very much about marking that 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 hierarchy, that class structure through these ideas of cultural capital, what you know, who you know, where you went to school, and whilst we can't necessarily do anything about things like where, whether or not you went to the the, the right university. Or, or you know which whether it's Eton or Harrow that you went to um, as a teacher the one thing that we can maybe look at is about supplementing the knowledge base that, that the kids that we teach every day get to uh, get to leave school with oh yeah totally totally it's funny but even even your reference to that like that John Cleese sketch and I was like well and I knew it and I was like well that's cultural capital and that kind of like Fixates, it fixes us in a certain period of time as well, and like because we you know we 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 know the reference. That's a cultural touchstone. We've got that. That's fine. But for a younger generation, they're not going to know. They're not going to know who John Cleese was or Monty Python or you know the two Ronnies. Um, so when you start thinking about like that kind of idea of cultural knowledge, um, you see it everywhere. It starts kind of really kind of becoming a lens you look for. It's like I know this. Do you know this? That kind of thing, I think. But I think as teachers, we do have a duty to give the right kind of knowledge. And it is, I think it is about knowledge. What I, I disagreed with in the article was the idea that universities are interested in teaching skills and thinking skills over cultural knowledge, which ignores the fact that you need to have the knowledge before you can think about something. I mean, you know, thinking skills rest upon knowledge. How can you think about it if you don't know it? Um, Absolutely. It's, it's having that wider knowledge base from which to draw is hmm. what the universities are at, what that's actually talking about, I think. But then even, but even looking at like, um, I've written an examiner's report for in AQA English language paper two, and it talks about the high level answers, being able to access you know, advanced ideas about culture and philosophy and politics and economics. And that's that's the actual examiner's report for a GCSE exam, effectively referencing cultural capital. Because, you know, you, the kids having to read a text and be able to make the links on where the writer is coming from, the idea of how the writers approach them, the, the writer's viewpoint, which, you know, hamstrings a lot of pupils who haven't got that link I've got those ideas from getting, you know, your grade nine at GCSE. Well, I'm 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 smiling wryly at that from from the you know the the school that I'm at with autistic kids. You know, they're going to struggle massively to make those kind of links and to be able to join up all those different ideas together and synthesize them into interpret what's going on that's that's incredibly going to be incredibly challenging for them but that's the, na- that's the nature right now of the game they're in kids kids need to know a lot of stuff especially what's cultural capitalism they've got to know a lot of stuff we've got to teach them and they've got to be applied they've got to apply that thing in the exam context and then when they go into the real world they've got to apply again out in the real world to get the job interview to get the university course they want to get onto what do we do what do we do in the class on a day-to-day basis well that's it but and but then we're kind of you know we're at morton's fork another cultural reference but like the, the idea that like um 
we're so pressurized for content, especially Key Stage 4, it's like content, 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 that you're not going to take time to pause and go down a kind of random avenue to give the kids that cultural knowledge that may help them out, maybe. You know, so and what? So we need to, we need to give it to them in other ways because cultural capital. These are things you just you know absorb by osmosis theoretically. You know, in a right house in a right household, you just get you hear your parents having a discussion at the table. Hell, in a right household, you actually have the discussions with your parents at the dinner table. I didn't know that as a kid. The TV was on. We watched TV and had dinner. You know. As teachers, we're trying to fill in the blanks for those who haven't got it and who don't know they haven't got it and who don't know they don't know and don't know the impact of that either. Yeah, my my kind of vague thinking about it, because it is from, from page to practice, so I did kind of try and have a think about what I could actually do to try and give the kids that I teach because yeah very few of them the kids that I teach have those kind of families very few of them have those kinds of discussions um so I was kind of thinking about what I could do um I thought about the fact that for our school this year the main emphasis is on literacy um, and I was reading um, Adam Boxer's blog about how I teach whole class reading. Mm. And I thought, well, for maths, if I got some fairly rigorous academic style notes combined with a bit of historical information, you know, when we started a new topic or something like that, we go and we read through, we do a whole class reading activity just take a little bit of time to read through it to explore it it doesn't have to be a whole huge thing at the very least it will give those students just that little bit extra that they that they don't have at the moment that little bit extra that they can bring into an essay maybe or a an interview of some kind or a discussion just a little extra fact that maybe might help that's my uh, you know my effort at, at putting it putting this into practice the only problem is i've now got to go i've outed myself i've said i'm going to do it so i'm actually have to go and, and write these things now we're doing so i've kind of started attacking the problem and it is a wicked problem of cultural capital through the literacy aspect again but that's so like and I did a lot of work with my year 7 last year now in year 8 but I did a lot of work with like words of the day words of the week even words of the week on, pack, on picking a word of the week um, and then like word games with it and then how the words where they come from tied into Latin or Greek or whatever or or Germanic and, and showing how these words link together on line meanings and inference and um, implication of these words. So we did that last year, that was quite successful. And so I'm trying three things this year because I want to see which one works the best. So my year sevens, every day they are having a challenge book read to them at, you know, at pace. So it's like every morning, 
five, ten minutes in the morning. They come in, they sit down, and they, they have a book read to them. And right now they're doing Refugee Boy, which I thought would be a good, a good input. Again, because it's giving them an experience, a very different experience. But again, giving them that. So that gives them a, a cultural understanding of the wider world. My year eights are reading a non-fiction booklet that me and one English partner put together. And they've got this really sort of like challenging non-fiction, some challenging fiction there as well. And it's like different bits of adventure or other things or experience. So it's like, so it's some literary non-fiction. So Shackleton, um, Bear Grylls, um, Cracknell and Fogel, all that kind of stuff. Sort of excerpts from that they can read, discuss. And then my year nines are doing a more kind of word of the week and wordplay around that. And But each of those is designed, as well as hitting literacy, to hit that kind of that cultural capital through osmosis bit. Mm. So, you know, they're, and they're, having, they're having discussion time in class with the teacher, picking over those those key bits. And I'm sending off like little prompts. So I'm tracking where everybody is in the book or whatever. And then I'm going, okay, so you've got here, what's that mean? Or why has that happened? That kind of thing. And I'm going to see how that works basically over this year. It's interesting that we've both picking at picking at it through a, a literacy point of view <laughs> i think there's a, there is a certain power of, of if you can read something you can access someone else's words someone else's thoughts and, and yeah. therefore almost pick up those new ideas as your own through yeah. through the through the text yeah through osmosis yeah yeah um yeah but, but, you know, as, as a kid, that's how I learned about the wider world by, well, just reading books. You remember that thing where I went to university and there's all these words I'd read in books, but I'd never said them out loud before. And I say them out loud and people would go, you said that wrong, Hyper, hyperbole. And at yeah. first I said it out loud, I was like, I was hyperbole. And my next yeah. went, I think you mean hyperbole. Oh, sorry. Um, but again, that's an aspect of cultural capital, like knowing how to say the word, not just knowing the word. Well, it's that's a consequence of the the conversations that you were talking about earlier. You, if you're talking about those things, you're using the word, you're hearing someone else use it. So whereas if you've just read about it, then you, there was no Google where you could click on the word and it would it would read it to you. I mean, my my kid speaks so much better than I do, and I once had feedback from an office inspector. She said, oh, it's a good lesson. And I was like, oh, all right, yeah. How, how could I make it, you know, outstanding, as you do? And she said, oh, well, you do drop your T's an awful lot, don't you? You know, you're not, you're not modelling uh, best pronunciation, are you? And I was like, oh, okay. And I think that was my first definite concrete run into cultural capital, I think. 2011, I think that was, that conversation. It sounds Victorian, in a way. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think I think that yeah. Every time, I feel less guilty about correcting the pronunciation of, of, of the kids at school now, because I suppose I'm giving them again that measure of cultural capital, so that they have they have the choice about mm. which accent they can choose to use. Make the choice for the right audience whereas if you don't know if you don't know any better keep coming back to that if you don't know you can't make the choice 
I listened. I, I, I listened to um, I had this great HMI speech once, and this, this guy was so ahead of his time. This would have been about 2004, maybe 2005, and he was saying why middle class kids succeed, and he was saying it's about it's about how um, middle class kids are exper- have, have experienced. So they go to Granny's house, they go to other Granny's house, they get they know how to behave. And Granny maybe gives them a sweet, but keep a secret from Mummy. So they, behave, they know they can behave differently at Granny's house than with their parents. Then they do all the after-school clubs, and each teacher there has got a different way of doing things, and all these things that working-class kids don't get. They don't get that ability to code switch um, between different, you know, groups. Not learn all the. They're not learning. Oh, there are different rules for behaviour here, and different rules here. They don't learn that. And then he said, you know, I hate being called mate in a supermarket by someone. And I was like, well, why do that? I think that was that was a real eye-opening. I must have been like two years into a teaching then. That was about right. That was a real eye-opening moment. Yeah, there's a bit, there's a bit at the end about how we figured out that. Um, basically, you have a cultural cap, the right cultural capital. James Bond knows you're a bad guy. Wow. Well, I don't know about you, but I really enjoyed the conversation format and would love to have it back in future. Let us know what you thought using hashtag pagepracticepodcast. Maybe you'd like to collaborate this way in future episodes. So, that's all for this Impact Special. Thanks to all the contributors, Sarah, Jess, Matthew, Keith, Henry, Donna, Andrea, Richard and Eugene for their amazing work, the article authors that inspired them and the Charter College of Teaching for putting Impact together in the first place. Also, a final thanks to Joe from the Charter College of Teaching for his recordings that you've heard throughout this podcast. All that remains to be said is that I hope you've enjoyed this Impact Special, that you'll consider becoming a member of the Charter College of Teaching if you're not already, and that you'll join us for the next episode in a few weeks' time on Closing the Vocabulary Gap by Alex Wigley. You've been listening to From Page to Practice. Don't forget to join in the conversation using hashtag pagepracticepodcast. Alternatively, to suggest a book or article or volunteer to contribute to an episode, visit learninglinguist.co.uk forward slash page practice podcast. Thanks go to Kevin McLeod of Incomtech.com for use of the tracks Cheery Monday and Fuzzball Parade, which are licensed under Creative Commons.